The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. The letter to the Roman church, we've said almost ad nauseum, is the most important letter probably ever written. That it was through this letter that the Apostle Paul explained the glories and the depth and the beauties of a relationship with Jesus Christ, what had happened to us as he thundered away with his pen on parchment and was writing just over and over uh, of the depth, of the beauty uh, of, of our theology, of our doctrine, of our framework, of how we understand our lives. And then in the swift movement of a pen in what would be our chapter 12, verse 1, but just in his letter, he said, Now, therefore, because of all of these things that have taken place, all of these truths which you believe, Now, because of these things, present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, for it is your act of spiritual worship. He was simply saying, now, don't just let this be an academic exercise for you. Don't just have your doctrine fine-tuned so that you can argue with people from different traditions and backgrounds, but know these truths, appropriate them into your life, and it will affect the manner in which you live. Paul would conversely probably argue this, if I can't see any change within your life, if your lifestyle and your life does not reflect some substantive change from the inside out, a spiritual transformation that then begins to work its way out into behavioral modification, if I don't see that, I have to question whether you believe anything of chapter 1 through 11 and whether it's actually happened to you. Paul would say that we have to approach God. On his terms, not ours. That's what Romans is all about. And last week we were looking and seeing the challenge for us of coming to God on his own terms as it relates to the civil authorities. Of looking and understanding and having to believe, believe that we believe and believe that God is neither Republican nor Democrat. That he is not political in nature, but that he uses politics and civil authorities to fulfill his ultimate and eternal plans. That is true of the United States. It is true within our framework. It is equally as true for our brothers and sisters in Christ who today are reading in chapter 13 verses 1 to 7 in North Korea and believing that God uses that government And that our brothers and sisters in China and in the Sudan and in Syria and all around the world say and look at the scriptures and say this is challenging to us. We don't fully understand God, but yet we trust him. And we said last week in passing, and some of you have have asked some questions about it, that I said God is more concerned at the end of the day with our obedience and our trust in Him and our willingness to pursue Him even in light of the loss of civil liberties? What happens if in our country the government took a radical turn and it was mandated by the civil authorities at every level that if you openly profess Jesus Christ, if you claim that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you will lose your civil liberties, that all of your assets will be frozen, 
that your jobs will be lost, that your families will be in grave danger. God is less concerned about the loss of your civil liberties as he is of whether or not you'd be willing to stand at that moment and say, I can do no other. I am compelled by conscience and by belief to stand and profess Christ and you can take everything else from me. That's what I mean by that. Paul is, God is not all that concerned about the things that we are concerned about. He doesn't get as worked up as we do uh, about these things. And if our God, who's the ultimate authority on the ultimate throne, isn't all that worked up about it, guess who else shouldn't get all worked up about it? Just by way of inference. Not that any of you get worked up about politics out there at all. Your bumper stickers don't decry that at any level. So now, we come in chapter 13, and we've seen how Paul is writing and saying, okay, love is expressed, and God, following God is expressed by our trust of him, even in the midst of the civil authority. Now he picks up, and I'm going to throw a little curve, we're going to pick up at verse 8, and read down through the rest of the chapter, verse 14. So if you have your Bibles, this is Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. This is the very word of the Lord. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now. Then when we first believed, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the very word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you add now your Spirit's work to your Word, that it would penetrate into our hearts and that we would be humble enough to receive it and then to go out in obedience to it. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So now Paul turns and at some level comes back and saying, How is it that we respond to the Lord? Well, we respond by obeying the civil authority, but we also respond by loving one another. He highlights the very basis and the very foundational idea and truth of our relationship with him and our relationship with one another, and that is to love one another. And he says in this, and he gives us five things that we're going to look at at least today, briefly. A command, a means by which to fulfill that command, the motivation for us to fulfill that command, a challenge that's presented to us in the completion of that command, but then a solution that's also presented to us. So a command, a means, a motivation, a challenge, and a solution. The command is straightforward in verse 8. Love one another. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
the great church father, Origen, wrote this. He said, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love, a debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in fully discharging. This text isn't talking about whether you should have a mortgage or not. This debt is saying, this passage is saying, if you do have a debt, pay it. Pay your taxes, pay revenue to the people that you owe revenue to. If you do have a mortgage, pay your mortgage on time. If you have other debt, pay those debts. Do not be indebted to someone. Do not be behind in those things, but do those things. So this isn't a a sermon on debt management or whether or not we should have mortgages. What Paul was highlighting in the middle of this was simply the fact that we owe to one another the debt of love. That we will forever be indebted in that way under obligation to one another. To love one another as God first loved us. He said you can do all kinds of other things. But unless you love each other, all those other things don't matter. And the, the context of that is the church. When he says one another or each other, that's Paul's language for church or Christian community. He says the primary place where this exhibition of love and this demonstration of love takes place is within the visible body of the church. He says you start there and then go out into the world, but it's starting here that you love each other. And this may seem, oh, that's fine, we we love each other. But Paul was talking to an audience that would have had deep and profound generational animosity to one another. And he was saying, you, you Greeks and you Jewish people and you from Rome and you from other places, all of you brought together, love each other desperately. He would say to Philemon and to Onesimus, a a boss and a, a servant, treat one another, love one another, even within your different economies of role and station. Love one another profoundly in Christ Jesus. Your relationships are so profoundly changed through the gospel that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There is neither slave nor free. It is this total, total change of the church that we love each other. It was almost as if he's saying this. If you can't figure it out within the confines of the church of people who believe the same thing, how do you expect the world to believe any of this? So start here and love each other really well. That means you're going to love each other through the ugly and through the good. That you're willing to get messy with one another. That the church, we've talked about the picture of the church, it can either be a museum where you walk in and there's beautiful pictures of families all along the wall. Oh, look at the McCutcheons. Don't they look great today? Oh, and the Scots, aren't they great? And oh, the Morgans are looking wonderful today. And isn't that good? Oh, good, happy families. Or is it a place that's a triage unit where people with broken, busted lives who have been bruised and beaten by the world come in and they try to find solace and hope for their souls. And instead of being terrified of someone who's bleeding a little bit, not literally, but someone who's bruised a little bit by the day, someone who failed miserably this week, and you see them in church, instead of going, what are they doing in church? And pulling aside and going, why are they here? How dare they show their face in the context of the church? Love within the context goes towards them and leads them back into Christ and into that relationship love 
covers a multitude of sins. Love, Paul says. Love, because we have first been loved. Paul's friend, John the Apostle, would have said, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Folks, I didn't write that. I'm probably not bold enough to have preached that on my own or made that statement. But John says, if you don't love each other, then you don't love God. You can't claim both. You can't stake the moral high ground and say, oh, I love Jesus. I love God. Now, I can't stand that individual. I'm never going to have them in my home. I'm never forgiving them. Those two are mutually exclusive. John and Paul were saying the command is to love one another. It's at the very heart of the Christian life. And it goes out. It's not just that it's limited to the church and the Christian church. We do love our neighbors. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan was about. Who's our neighbor? Our neighbor is the one who we wouldn't normally love in this world, but yet we're compelled by Christ's love to go and care for them, to see their needs as more important than our own needs, willing to sacrifice to go out and to do that. So the command is to love. So how do we love? We live in a culture that doesn't like rules. We don't like that two plus two equals four. I literally remember speaking to a young woman at Rhodes College years ago. And I looked at her and she said, well, I'm not sure about these things. And I said, well, listen, two plus two either equals four or it doesn't. And her response was, it doesn't matter to me whether it does or not. I was like, you do know those are just the simple laws of mathematics and, and, and philosophy. She goes, no, not really. I don't need that. We live in a world that says, I just want to love. Paul says this, there is a means by which we love. There is a method to our love and the method and the means of our love for one another and to God is by his law that he has designated how we love each other he said this do you want to love one another then don't kill each other you go well, Bill I haven't murdered anybody this week have you been angry have you done everything that's the negative is the don't side don't murder but the positive side of that statement is this have you done everything to bring out life in the other person, to preserve their life, to enhance their life, to love them in that way. You're to love by not stealing. And you go, well, I haven't stolen anything this week. Well, that's good, but that's not fully what he means by that. He means also this, are you also, by your love for that pers- to, to that person, saying to them, not only am I not going to steal, but I'm going to be generous towards you. It's not just that I'm not going to take from you, but I'm going to be generous towards you in helping meet your needs at even a great sacrifice to myself. That I'm not going to lie to you, but I'm going to live honestly with you, which means this, I'm going to be honest enough with you to let you know when you've hurt me. Let you know when there's something in between us Because I believe the scripture that says, as far as it depends upon me, be at peace with one another. I'm going to come to you and say, hey, something that you said to me a couple of weeks ago, it wounded me, it hurt me. And I've been holding that, so I want to be honest with you. I don't want to lie anymore within our relationship. And so I'm going to come to you and I'm going to share that with you so that we can be brought together and flourish within the middle of it. You see, Paul is saying there's a way that we love each other. There's a way that we love one another. I did a wedding yesterday. 
outdoor wedding yesterday. At 2.30 yesterday. And you know, they say that rain on a wedding day brings good luck. Well, this couple has a lot of luck coming their way, if you believe in such things. What would it have been like for me to say to them, now, bride, groom, bride, love however you want. If that means, buddy, you have more than one girlfriend and sexual partner, that's fine. However, you want to love her. If that means for you, sweetheart, that you love him by being a domineering person and bitter, that's fine. Just love however you guys want to love. Is that right? Of course not. You would say to them, love this way. Love each other how God would have you love. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, giving his very life for her to present her one day spotless before the king. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands and love him in a way that honors the Lord. And in so doing, you show true love based on principles and based on means. And so, folks, we can't say, I just want to love and I don't want the law. The law and love are not incompatible realities. We can't say, well, I've got Jesus and I just want to love. I don't need any of this law stuff, Bill. The only way that we can fully love is by means of the law, is by means of God's code by which he said, this is how you love one another. And we cannot fully and perfectly love one another short of glory. So we still have to utilize these laws to provide the means. One day we won't need those laws because we'll be perfect in the presence of Christ. But until that day, we still need the law. I hope you understand that. And so we have the command to love one another. We have the means to love one another, which is through God's law. And some of you are saying, well, I don't know. Why, why should I do this? Why should I do this? Here's why you should do this. Take yourself back to maybe bygone days. Dad left you in charge of the house. You're responsible for all the things. Here's our motivation. Dad's coming home. Dad's coming home. And he has an absolute expectation that we've taken care of things and that we've lived according to the house rules and according to the family values. Parents, if you really want to love your children, let them know that you're going to come back from vacation, but don't let them know exactly when. If you say you're going to show up at 4, show up at 11, just to see. Are they prepared for you coming home? Have they done the things that you've asked them to do? Or are they scrambling around at the last minute to go, oh no, mom and dad are coming home at 4. I've got to get everything cleaned up. I've got to do all of these things. I've got to wrestle. See if they're prepared for your coming. That's what, how God loves us. The motivation that Paul gives us here is this. Jesus is coming back. And we don't know when, by the way. He could come now. Or now. Or now. But you hear, but you know how we live? I'll get around to it, Bill. I want to enjoy my teenage years. I just want to go out and have some fun. Boys are going to be boys. Girls are going to be boys. They're just going to go out and live and do whatever they want to do. Because Jesus isn't coming back right now. He hasn't come back yet. And we've been, we've been just brought into this slumber. And I hear college students say, I'll get around to it one day. Maybe when I get married. Ah, okay. 
Then I hear young married couples say, well, I'll get around to it maybe when we have children and we want them raised in the church. And then I see young families say, well, when it's not quite so crazy with little ones to bring to nursery and to do all that, I'll get involved in the church and I'll, I'll really pursue Christ at that time. And I hear professionals say, well, once I've earned a certain amount of, of lifestyle credibility and I've got enough in savings, then I'll get serious about my relationship with Christ. But one day, one day, and Paul is saying this, your motivation is simply that Christ is going to return and you don't know when. And he's going to expect us to be living for him now when he returns. It's the picture of the, of the master who stewarded all of his wealth and, and everything to the servants. And he came home and surprised him. Or the thief that comes in the middle of the night. You see, Paul shifts the emphasis of Christians to look to the present in light of the future versus looking to the present in light of the past. He has been arguing, remember what has happened to you in the past. Now that is motivation for you of living in the future. Christ has done this for you. All of this has happened in the past. Now live according to these truths. Now he says, but there's also another motivation. Live with the future in mind that Christ is returning home one day. And you don't know when that day is. You don't know when you're going to meet him face to face. Part of my story is that I made a decision a number of years ago based on the simple fact that I saw my dad on a Tuesday afternoon and he invited me in to hang out and I couldn't and I said I'd see you tomorrow. I didn't know that what I'd be watching on tomorrow was his dead body on the floor of our den. He didn't plan on dying on Tuesday night. I'm not planning on dying today. But I don't and you don't have any decision or determination in the day that you're born or the day that you die. And so in light of that, we live not knowing, but living fully in the present moment, going, I'm going to live for Christ today, not wait for some other day to do it. And for some of you, that needs to resonate with you. That needs to sit down and bother you today. To say, today is the day, I'm not going to wait, but today is the day that I'm going to fully give my life to Christ. Today is the day that I'm going to fully live for Him. I am no longer going to do it because He is going to come back again one day. And I want to be prepared when He comes back. When He comes or He brings me home, either one, I want to be prepared for that day. Amen. Peter said the time is now. And he uses a word that actually means it's the opportune moment for you to do it now. If you've ever wondered, Bill, what's God's will for my life? Pastor, what is, what's God's will for my life? Live for him now. Start now living for him. Don't wait for tomorrow. I don't know what happened on I-95. It looked like there could have been a loss of life on I-95. And none of those families were driving south on I-95 to die. They were driving home to live another day. None of us have that assurance and we need to live in light of that. That today's the day. Today is the day that we should live for Christ. It's the opportune moment. And so that's the motivation. I don't want to scare you. But at the same time, folks, I want to scare you. Christ is coming back. And when he returns, it's too late to choose him. While it is still day, 
pursue Christ. And I promise you this, no one has ever regretted not looking at pornography. No one has ever regretted not having one more drink, not having one more adulterous affair. No one has ever regretted pursuing darkness. But all the time I hear people regretting not pursuing light. I wish I'd done it earlier. I wish I'd done this. I wish I hadn't pursued all these other less wild lovers. I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I'd known Jesus earlier in my life. Well, you have that opportunity now. That he's inviting you in to do that. And so the... We come, and he says, come. That's the motivation. Now, there's a challenge within the middle of that, because the challenge is this. Okay, the challenge is taking off all the old. It's disrobing is the language that he uses. It says there in verse 12 and 13, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so cast off all the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Don't walk, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, etc., and quarreling and jealousy. Isn't it interesting that he adds those two? It's easy to pick on all the sexual, sensual things. He goes, oh, by the way, no jealousy and no quarreling within the church either. I was doing really well with those first four. Man, now I can't be jealous of some of you and what you have. We can't quarrel. I mean, it's kind of fun to quarrel. I feel good about myself on my high ground. He says you have to take off those things. Make no mistake, we're at war, and there is a war taking place within your own life. And it's a war, and it's a battle of darkness and light. It's a battle of flesh and of spirit. But I say to you, walk in the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Folks, this is a battle. Do any of you struggle, and this is an honest assessment, do any of you struggle with sin in your life? Have any of you struggled with the same sin in your life more than once? It's a struggle. That's okay. Some of you go, Bill, I must not be a very good Christian because this is such a struggle. And I would celebrate and go, amen for the struggle. If there's no struggle, you should be concerned. That means your conscience isn't bothered anymore. There is a struggle to take off. He is saying, you cannot be passive in this, but you are taking off, actively taking these things off, saying, I am not going to pursue those things. I refuse to do those things. I refuse to have these inputs into my life. I am not sitting by and only responding, but I am actively taking these things off of me. I'm disrobing them. And Paul says again, Don't wait. And he echoes his friend Peter, who says this. So live for Christ the rest of the time, and no longer for human passions, but the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Folks, don't be surprised when your old group of friends don't want to hang around you necessarily when you give your life to Christ. You shouldn't be surprised by that. 
Why aren't you doing these things? Why aren't you getting drunk with us? Why aren't you getting high with us? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you and doing these things in business practices? How is it that all of a sudden you've changed? What in the world is the difference in you? Here's what your response should be. I've put on Christ. I'm different than I was yesterday. And I'm so thankful that you see that difference in me. That means something good is happening within my life. And it says they will malign you because you do not pursue with them the same debauchery. Now, adults, you may not feel that as much, but I promise you that the younger generations do. Our young people are getting decimated in schools and in our communities and our culture. And what they need more than anything else is for you, the adults, to live a life that they can look at and go, it's worth it. It is worth it. I want to be like that man. I want to be like that woman. I want to have the life that they have. I want to have an integrity that they have. And I'm willing to sacrifice whatever I have to sacrifice now to be like. And hopefully, parents, it's you that they want to be like. But if not you, then someone else in the church. That our young people can grow up and we would cheerlead them on to say, it's okay. If you don't have any place to go Friday night because all of your knucklehead friends are out there doing their knucklehead things, we're going to create a place for you to be on Friday night and we're going to be here for you and we're going to celebrate you and we're going to provide for you so that you can make it through. Does that make sense? You've done such a good job of that. That's why the half of the building is that way down there for students and children to say to them, we think it's important because folks, that's where they're lost. And so many of them never come back to the church. That's why we have Reform University Fellowship and other ministries on the college campuses to try to reach these young people. But we take off the other things. And I'm out of time, but I would be remiss if I didn't give you those. That's the challenge. We all know the challenge, don't we? It's tough. It's really tough. There are sometimes it's just a flat-out white knuckle, isn't it? I'm not going to do it. 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 And you need to have a friend that you can call about that time and go, hey, I'm incredibly tempted to go do something stupid. Can you remind me of why I shouldn't do that? And they're going to go, oh, yeah, let me give you the solution. Put on Christ. That's the final thing. They're going to remind you, here's what you need to do. Put on Christ. Be reminded of who you are in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation created for good works in him. The old is gone and the new is come. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So it is not passive again. It is actively putting that on. And it's not just putting on the armor of God in Ephesians 5. Some of you are good about doing that. But it's actually putting on Christ. And saying, I am in him, enveloped by him. I am new. This is not the old Bill McCutcheon. And because this is not the old Bill McCutcheon, I'm not going to respond to my wife like the old Bill McCutcheon would. And I'm not going to respond to my children. I'm not going to respond to my friends. And I'm not going to respond to the triggers of life the way that I used to because I'm not the same person anymore. I'm different. And you know what I need in my life to help remind me of that? It's you. Because I've got an enemy and so do you who says, really? You're a Christian? You're a new creation? With all those boneheaded decisions that you still make and the temper that you still lose and and this and that and the jealousy that's in your heart and the insecurity. You? Really, McCutcheon? And I need some of you to come around me and you need some of me's to come around you and go, this is who you are. You are beloved of God. You are worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf. 
And your past no longer defines you. His past does. And you are a child of the king and you are gloriously purchased and you are gloriously adopted and you have a future and your dad's coming home one day. And let's be ready when dad comes home. So let's not wait until 11.59 for his 12 o'clock arrival. Because folks, I don't know if he's going to come at 11.56. So, love one another. And make no provision for the flesh. Put on Christ in that way. And let's do that together in the body. And see what the world around us thinks when they see the transformation that's taking place here. Let's pray. God, thank you for the glory that we have in you. Thank you that you are worthy of our lives. And Father, for some here, they are wrestling with what they've read and heard. They're overwhelmed with guilt and with shame. And I pray that that would turn to repentance and that you would turn them back to yourself and that they would, as the scripture says, place an Ebenezer in the ground today, a marking of saying, I am making a change and a difference from the past to the future, and it starts right now. So would you give them the strength and conviction to do that by the power of your spirit? For Father, you are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Sing a new song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Would you receive all of our praise today? Amen. Let's